Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Um, I'm going to put all the verses up here on the screen for the sake of time because we're going to go through a whole lot of them. Uh, but two of them kind of give us an idea of where we're going this morning and understanding uh, God's purposes and plan and his wisdom. Uh, and we're still walking through the book of 2 Samuel, and we talked about this last week. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, it says, David was 30 years old when he became king, which is relatively young, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So, um, again, it's not that it was divided, but only the portion of Judah, one of the tribes, acknowledged him as king. And that's relatively young to become a king. Uh, but if you think about someone who becomes a governor at the age of 30 years old, that's kind of young to be a governor. Um, and then, uh, seven years later, they become president. So he was... Even though he was king over Judah, it was just over one portion of the nation. And then seven years later, he became ruler over the entire nation. And there have been a lot of people who have ruled over nations or been in positions of power at a very young age really quick. just wanted to highlight a couple of them. First, Theodore Roosevelt uh, came president at age 42, like youngest president we've ever had, which is a little shocking that it was still kind of old, but still kind of young. Uh, Alexander the Great... Um, he took over, his, uh, succeeded his father, Philip II, at the age of 20, right? And then he conquered most of the known world, a lot of it because he was young enough to say, why can't we do this? Like, I don't see a reason why we can't just go in and do it this way and let's make it happen. And he did, and they did. Uh, and King Tut, how many heard of King Tut? Egypt. Uh, he was nine years old uh, when he became pharaoh, uh, of Egypt. He only ruled for 10 years. And then back to the Bible, Jehoash uh, became king of Judah. This is after it was a split kingdom, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he started at age seven. He ruled for 40 years. And then one of my favorites, Mary, queen of Scott, right? She, she I think, hands down, takes the cake as the youngest person to ever step into a leadership role uh, she was six days old when her dad died, and uh, I think his name was James, King James, when he died, and then she began her rule. She ascended to the throne, six days old, was crowned the queen. I think she spent most of her years in France, and there were like regents or governing rulers who kind of ruled over Scotland during that time until she became of age. But it was such a cool story that the CW, of course, TV show, made a TV show out of it called Rain about her life. And then honorable mention, not a national leader, 2007, at the age of 23, which is really young, that's like millennial age, Mark Zuckerberg became the world's youngest self-made billionaire. Like, would it be? Billionaire, first one. They're kind of like almost a dime a dozen now because everybody's a billionaire or something. But uh, here's the thing, most people want leaders who have experience, and wisdom and knowledge because they want them to make wise decisions. And it's great when you have that youthful exuberance that says, hey, let's go try this, let's go try that. But it's better when you have also some wisdom and knowledge that says, yeah, let's try that, but let's be careful. Or yeah, let's try that, but let's take some time. 
or no, we definitely don't want to try that because here's, here's obviously what's going to happen uh, when we do. And it's great when you have rich leaders or young leaders or, you know, old leaders. But what the world really needs are some godly leaders, guys who, or women who know God. Because uh, when it comes to leading, God has all the knowledge, all the wisdom it takes to lead all the people, not just this party or that party, not just this race or that race, not just rich or poor, but the knowledge to lead everyone. So David, he becomes king. First thing he does is he says, I got to establish a place that sets up this nation, not as David's nation, but as God's nation. So the very first thing he does is he says, I got I to gotta go like set up a city from which we can rule, from which I can rule, and from which God can rule. Uh, so he goes and he sets up and attacks uh, what are known as the Jebusites. Such in uh, chapter 5, verse 6, the king, David, and his men, they went to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you'll not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And they thought, David can't get in here. One of the reasons they thought it, the Jebusites, first and foremost, they were descendants of the Amorites. The Amorites were basically the Canaanites. They were basically a barbaric type people. Anyone see, uh, what was it called, Escape from New York? old movie where they put a wall around New York and made New York City a prison, and, and just anyone who needs to go to jail rather than house them, they just send them to New York, fend for your own, all the worst of the worst. And that's kind of what it was. It was a city of barbaric, but it was protected because Jerusalem, city on a hill. Anyone who came to attack it, you can't really get in here, right? So David decides, you know what? I think I can. That's why they were like, David, you, you can't get in here. What are you doing? We don't care who you are. We don't care that you're the king of the nation. We don't care that we're in your nation. There's nothing you can do to us. And David was like, I can't get to them through the wall. And he, again, young guy, soldier, strategist, but also God was with him. So he says, I'm not going to try to attack them from the outside. I'm going to dam up the water, and I'm going to go up through the water ducts or the sewer Pretty much any movie you ever see where it has people going in through the sewer, it's because of this. And he takes the whole city by going up through the sewer rather than while they're all around the outsides of the walls looking and waiting for him to come up, he comes up from the middle and defeats everyone, right? Uh, and then it says this, he took up residence in the fortress, called it the city of David, built up the area around it from the terraces inward and became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Again, godly wisdom, soldier, smart guy, but then he thought, you know what, hey, there's different ways to attack, but, you know, let's work smarter, not harder. And rather than lose a bunch of men, it may cost us to go digging through the sewage, but we eventually will win. And that's, again, that's just the wisdom of God, his military knowledge, his strategy. And then it says that, you know what, the Lord God Almighty was with him. And he became more and more powerful because of God. So the next thing he does is he says, hey, i got to get rid of the enemies in Israel. Uh, so the Philistines come, and they try to attack. Uh, they come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, again, godly wisdom, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And the Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. And he does. He goes and he attacks them. Uh, and now, again, he defeats them, as, as we're about to see. Uh, he defeats them. He went to uh, Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, his waters break out. The Lord is broken out against the enemies. But he gives credit to God. Again, godly wisdom. He's a great military guy, great soldier. 
Uh, he defeated Goliath when he was young. He defeated lions and tigers and bears. I don't know about tigers, but lions and bears. And now, again, uh, when he was under Saul, great strategist. When he was running from Saul, had bands that were raiding with him, great strategist. But again, godly wisdom. God was with him. Hey, God, how do I do this? Hey, God, make me better at this. The next thing he does is he says, hey, now that I've gotten rid of the enemies, because he ends up defeating all the Philistines. Now, they still would come back and attack, but uh, before, the Philistines were oppressing them. And we talked about this weeks ago to where they, if they didn't even have weapons. Only like King Saul and his son and some of the households had weapons. Everyone else, if they had to even wanted to, to uh, sharpen their plow, they had to go down to an area in the Philistines because the Philistines were like, yes, you're a separate nation, but we have a say over you. But once David defeated them, the Philistines never oppressed them again. They would still come and they would attack them and they would fight with them, but they never were over them. It's kind of like how God does with us, right? Jesus says there's a king or a prince of the air, referring to Satan, but Satan is kind of ruling over the earth. But when you become a Christ follower, you're no longer under Satan. Now you're a new creation. Does Satan still attack? Does he still tempt? Does he still do stuff to us? Yeah. But then the Bible tells us greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. So yeah, we still live in a place, we still live in a fallen world, we still live in a world where people are hateful and are angry and they do all kind of crazy stuff, but we also live in a world where because of God in us, again, we can use godly wisdom, choosing how we respond and how we deal with those issues. And that's what, that's what he did. Now, his next goal, he says, I've, I've, I've got the, the city established, right? We're, we're in Jerusalem I've gotten rid of the enemy. He says, the next thing I want to do is I want to make this a place where God's name is known. So I'm going to bring the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, and I'm going to bring it here into Jerusalem. And in chapter 6, it's what it says. David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between a cherubim and an ark. Now, there's a reason why uh, it says that it's in Bela in Judah, uh, but it's really Kiriath Jerem, same place. And what had happened, I don't know if you guys remember when we talked about this several weeks ago, way back in 1 Samuel, uh, the Philistines had captured the ark and they brought it to their town and they put it in their temples and uh, the temple of Dagon, and then it, they would come in and they would find their false gods and idols knocked over. So they would send it to the next town, and every town it went to, the town would break out with hemorrhoids and rat infestations, which is the weirdest combination you can think of. But hemorrhoids and rat infestations. So finally, the leader said, we got to send the ark back. And they put it on a, 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 a cart and just put two oxen and said mush, and it went, and it ended up back in Kyrgyz chair. And now David says, hey, if this is going to be the city where we worship God, and where from God rules, where this nation is known as a godly nation, then we need to have the ark here. Because from, from the Jewish mindset, it wasn't just the ark, uh, where it says who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. The Jewish mindset was uh, on top of the ark. That was the seat of God's judgment and mercy. Now, we know who God has a throne in heaven. But their understanding was, hey, when God is down here and he's ruling and reigning and judging us, he does it from there. Some versions say it was more of his footstool than his seat. But in either way, they were like, hey, this, this is a representation. This is like uh, an embassy. 
right? Like we have embassies in Japan, we have embassies in China, we have embassies in other nations, France, England, whatever. And when you go to that embassy, even though it's in another nation, you're on U.S. soil, and the same with the embassies that are here. And that, that's how the ark was viewed. Even though it's down here on earth, it's in the city, it is the soil. You're stepping into the presence of God. So he says, I'm going to make sure that I bring that here. And then he goes and he does, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. This is, David and Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So what happened was he says, hey, I'm going to bring the ark here. I'm going to send 3,000 men. We're going to go down. We're going to load up the ark. We're going to get it. Meanwhile, back in Israel, there was like a huge party celebration going on. Think any one of the six Super Bowls that the Steelers won. While they were flying back, like on their way here, we're setting up a parade, we're celebrating, people were rejoicing, people are happy, and that's what was going on, because people were celebrating that the ark is coming back. This is going to be a place where God's name is known. We're going to celebrate, and we're going to rejoice, except, and I didn't mean to laugh about it, this happens. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. And it kind of seems like this is one of those verses where if you're talking to people who say God is a moral monster, he does all these, this is one of the verses that people bring up. It's like, look at the God who you say you serve. This is what he did. He killed a man for his good intentions, which is not actually what happened. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. First and foremost, uh, there was a way that they were supposed to transport the ark. And they weren't doing it the way God asked. And one of the reasons they weren't doing it is because David just didn't know that. Again, David, when it came to getting into Jerusalem and defeating them, great strategist. He did it, hands down, no problem. When it came to defeating the Philistines, a great soldier, great warrior, he took care of it, no problem. But when it came to something else, which he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a, a prophet, came to how do we do this thing with these godly things. Uh, he just went to what he knew, and he didn't actually know how that was supposed to be done. There was a set way that God had ordered, um, this is the way that you're supposed to bring the ark in, and there's a way that you're supposed to transport it. Now I'll get back to that in a minute, uh, but here, David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, meaning the Lord's anger broke out. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? That's an indication of what, yeah, David was trying to set up a house of God for the nation, but David was also trying to make a name for himself. How can I bring the ark here to the city so that God's name is known, but how can I also be known as the one who brought the ark here? And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all human. We all do a little bit of stuff for ourselves. We, we want to do things for God. We want to do things to help other people, but we also want to do things that make us look good. None of us wants to do anything that makes us look bad. But when you're in a position of leadership, if you're focused... It's only doing something to make yourself look good. 
then you're not helping or serving the people that you're supposed to serve because you're focused on making yourself good, putting your name first, making your name highlighted, and you're supposed to be focused on leading the people, serving the people, meeting the needs of the people. And this is just one, it's just one tiny area where David didn't quite get it right. Now, in the book of Exodus, God had laid out, there's a way that you transport the ark. When the ark was built, uh, it was built with little rings on the sides along the bottom. And they were supposed to put poles through those rings and carry it on the shoulders of the people. And one of the reasons was because God would take away the burden and the sins of all humanity and put them on the shoulders of his son. And so God's people were supposed to carry God on their shoulders. And it says uh, in Exodus chapter 22, even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. In other words, anyone who went into the presence of God, they had to be holy, they had to be set apart. Uh, some of them would spend days where, you know, I'm not going to talk certain ways, I'm not going to eat certain people, I'm not going to even, you know, talk to or, or look at women or anything because I want to be holy when I step into the presence of God. And later in the book of Numbers, it specifically said there was a group of people that were supposed to carry the ark. After Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. God had a set protocol. If you're transporting the ark, and he was writing to people who that's all they did while they were in the desert, moved from spot to spot, transporting the ark. And he said, this is exactly how you're supposed to do it. And whether we like it or not, he said, if you don't do it this way, then my wrath or my anger will break out against you and you will die. And so David comes along, this is, you know, hundreds of years later, and he says, hey, let's transport the ark. Because he doesn't have that wisdom, that experience, he doesn't go to the priest and say, hey, we're going to transport the ark. Is there any particular way that we should do this? Now, he, he's that young guy that says, hey, you know what? If we're setting up a city, we need the ark to be in the city so all the people will know this is God's city. It's going to make my name great. It's going to make God's name great. But he doesn't have that wisdom to say, hmm, I wonder if there's a particular way that we're supposed to do this. And so the way that he ends up doing it, it ends up getting people dead. And this was just his lack of knowledge. And there are some things where, hey, it's great. Knowledge, wisdom are great. Godly knowledge, godly wisdom, ten times better. And he knew that when it came to, to war and strategy, because that's what he was good at. And he didn't just know it when it came to everything else. And uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, David's son, Solomon, would write this. He said, how much better is it is to get skillful and godly wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than sold. Now, here's a guy who's filthy rich. I mean, rich beyond, even beyond Bezos rich. I mean, he's just filthy rich. And he says, but you know what? Godly wisdom, worth more than that. Worth way more than that. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, who would later become, after denying Jesus, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, would later become the, the head and the pastor, many uh, theologians believe, of the church in Jerusalem, uh, when he's writing in his epistle, uh, this is what he writes about wisdom. He says that the wisdom from above 
meaning godly wisdom. It's pure, meaning undefiled. It's peace-loving. It's not used to promote war. It's courteous. It's willing. It yields to reason. It's full of compassion and good fruits. He says godly wisdom, that's the kind of wisdom that we want. And again, knowledge is the accumulation of information. Have a lot of information, a lot of uh, know-how to do stuff, uh, a lot of knowledge about different things. Wisdom is how do you apply that in our day-to-day? How do we live that out? How do we make that useful? So then David says, hey, you know what? Um, Maybe I need to just leave the ark here because he was upset, he was angry, someone just died, and he just puts the ark in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. Someone walks by Obed-Edom's house, and this is me, this is me paraphrasing, and they're like, Obed-Edom is having a party. They're like, hey, when we put the ark here, Obed-Edom had like one broken down truck. Three months later, Obed-Edom's got like two Rolls and a Lexus. When we put it here, Obed-Edom was trying to figure out how is he going to pay his bills and get his kids to college. Now they're all going to, you know, MIT. He didn't buy his way in. They just got into schools. And then one of the guys who sees this, he goes to David and he says, hey, you know what? In verse 6, he says, uh, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. And David's like, man, we got to get the ark here. Because I want that blessing, not just on one house, but on our kingdom, on one nation. Uh, So this time he does this. When those who are carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed the bull and the fattened calf. Now, they weren't transporting it with, uh, on a cart again. They were carrying it the right way. And now it's not just so much about bringing the ark there. He says, hey, uh, and imagine you're carrying this thing, and you get one, two, three, four, five, six. And he says, stop. And he sacrifices to God, and he worships God. And then he says, they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in a place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David sacrificed bird offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. He went back and he said, you know what? I got to rethink this thing. We're not going to make this a transport thing uh, uh, like, you know, like Amazon transporting boxes. We're not just going to fill that. We're going to make this a worship event where we're celebrating and rejoicing God every step of the way. And when they came into the city, we didn't read this. When they came into the city, he had on a linen ephod uh, over which or under which he had just his long johns, for lack of a better term. And as the people were rejoicing and celebrating as it came in, David wasn't sitting up in the palace in a dignified position. He was down there partying with the people. I wish I had the video of of Andrew 20 minutes before we started dancing here on stage because that reminds me, he was, I mean, Ben was just playing a random drum and Andrew was just dancing back and forth across the stage. That's literally what David was doing. I really wish I could put that video up there. That's literally what David was doing. It was just rejoicing and celebrating. People criticized him. People talked bad about him. He's like, I could care less. We're bringing the ark home. We're worshiping God. This is going to be his nation. This is going to be his people. And probably rejoicing because no one got killed that time. And this is what Jesus would say later on, much later on. 
Jesus talking about wisdom. And this is the message version, which is not a, a literal translation. It's more of a paraphrase of what the translation says. These words I speak to you, and this is Jesus after he's talking to a bunch of people at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's sitting up there, he's praying, his disciples come to him, he starts sharing with them. People are like covering the mountainside and he starts speaking to them about how to live, about relationships, about dealing with other people, about anger, about marriage, about all these things. And then he says, these words I speak to you, they're not incidental additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. He says, if you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter, most translations say a wise man, because that's what the indication is, who built his house on solid rock. And then he says this, rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. He says, if you take all of the words that I'm giving you on how to live and how to mix with each other, and if you're a wise person, you won't just take those words, and, and we talked about this, and I brought this cup just for that reason, uh, during one of the live streams, we were talking about a lot of people take the verses, Bible verses, they look great on the coffee cup. Don't apply them to their lives. Like, I don't know, you guys probably can't see this. This is uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Great on the coffee cup. God has plans for me, and most people will drink their morning coffee, put the cup down, and then go out and live their lives as if God has no plans for them, as if their life doesn't have a godly purpose. And Jesus says, hey, don't do that. He says, these are not just words that you put on a coffee cup and sit on your desk so people see, oh, yeah, God has a plan for you. These are words that you apply to your life and you go out and live your life as if God has a plan for you. Because then he says this, he goes on and he says, again, this is the message version. But if you just use my words in Bible studies or just put them on coffee cups or T-shirts or bumper stickers or the back of your windshield and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach, and when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Godly wisdom isn't just knowing, hey, I know all these verses, and I've got um, all these verses memorized, and, and I know how to uh, you know, find them. I, I, I can just I close my eyes and I can find this verse in the Bible. That's great. That's not godly wisdom, that's knowledge. Knowing the Bible is great. Godly wisdom is applying it to your life in situations where either things are going good or things are going bad or just every single day. It's going out knowing, yeah, God, I know your word says that you have a purpose and a plan for my life. So when I go out, I've got to treat others like you have a purpose and a plan for their life. I've got to sit at my desk and work, maybe not at the greatest job, but do it like you have a plan for my life. I've got to deal with situations and hurt and heartbreak, and financial issues and everything as if you have a purpose and a plan for my life. I have to take your words, and as he said, I have to use them as a foundation for how I'm going to live every day. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we pray that every single word from you, 
Not just the verses that we were taught in Sunday school, but the ones that we read, the ones that we hear here, the ones we may hear on the radio or in a song. That we realize that your words reveal truth. Your truth. And we pray that we can apply your words, your truth, to our life. James also said that if anyone wants to seek godly wisdom, all they have to do is ask. It may be wisdom uh, in an, uh, a specific situation or just general wisdom in how to deal with the pains of life. And so we, we ask God for wisdom in those areas where we don't have all the necessary answers, for wisdom in those areas where we're dealing with pain and heart ache and struggle, for wisdom in those areas where we're just trying to make things better, but most importantly, wisdom in those areas where we can live as a foundational part of our life. Live out your word, that you may be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen.